Well, this is the last week of our series called Weaklings. Uh, we've been looking at the reality and the place of weakness in our lives. And the idea that we've been trying to come to grasp is this, that our greatest weakness is, in fact, our greatest strength. You might be wondering why. Well, as Paul said in the reading, uh, when I am weak, then I'm strong. Our weakness, when in the hands of God, has a way of anchoring us, not in ourselves, but in Christ and his strength. Weakness, then, is a way to him. But it's one thing to acknowledge weakness, you know, such as limitations or downright inability. You know, I have no problem admitting that I can't grow a beard. This is two weeks, you know. Some call that weakness. I'm okay with that. Uh, But it's another thing to say what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that sometimes God intentionally gives us weakness. Can we come to terms with that? That God gives us specific weaknesses. While this sounds like a strange way for God to operate What the text uh, shows us is that the gospel frees us to truly boast of our weakness because if specific weaknesses are in fact from God, then they're gifts which will actually lead us more fully into his grace. So my hope is that we won't only see this this morning, but deeply believe that the idea of the series is true, that our greatest weakness is in fact our greatest strength. So open your Bibles up with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to walk through these next 10 verses together, starting with verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained from it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in body or out of body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. It's strange. Paul says, I'll go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained from it. And he goes on to describe this profound spiritual experience he's had with the Lord in a strange way. Um, He's standing outside of himself to look at himself. He says, I know a man. He's talking of himself, but he's talking about him from a distance. And he says, this man was caught up to third heaven. So not first heaven, not second heaven, but third heaven, in case you're wondering. I don't know what that is. It's okay. Uh, Your guess is as good as mine, but this man, Paul says, was caught up to paradise And he heard things from God, unspeakable mysteries, which cannot be told. But it's all a little odd. If there's nothing to be gained by boasting about what he's experienced, and if he wants to even distance himself from this man, then why tell the Corinthians about it at all? Why bring it up? At this point in the letter, Paul, he's drawing what scholars call his fool's speech to a close. From chapter 10 until now, uh, Paul is engaging what he calls the foolish exercise of boasting. And so throughout this speech, he says things like, I wish you would bear with me with a little foolishness. Or what I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Or even, I'm talking like a madman. But what's so foolish about this? You know, if you read the whole speech, Paul, he's just rehearsing his heritage, his pedigree, his persistence in ministry, his sacrifice and suffering, and some spiritual experiences like we just read. None of this seems all that bad. If anything, it would lend credibility to his work as an apostle and knowledge of God. So why does Paul consider it foolishness to boast of it? For Paul, it's foolishness to boast in anything about ourselves. Because if we're going to boast about anything, it should be about the Lord. If we're going to boast about anything we've accomplished, it should be about how God has worked in and through us. And we shouldn't be boasting about our own experiences and our own spiritual powers or abilities. 
And it's foolish for Paul to boast about these experiences because of what it means to the Corinthians. They put way too much stock into these things. They want mountaintop spirituality. No, they want incredible experiences dripping with strength and power. They love the pomp and show of people who come and boast about these very things, and they get caught up in it. And so Paul calls this entire speech foolishness because of what it means to the Corinthians. He's waxing eloquent as a a last resort to help them see that boasting in outward appearances is actually boasting in the wrong thing altogether. And again, a little more context is helpful, and then we'll move on. Uh, Paul is also responding to an issue of what he calls the super apostles, leaders who crept into the Corinthian church in his absence and began boasting about these very things. You know, they, they're eloquent in their speech. They're strong in their appearance. You know, they, they humble brag about their latest spiritual encounter with the Lord. And the Corinthians, they buy into this, and in Paul's absence, they start to look at Paul and think, Man, he's, he's a little weak. You know, he's, he's a little frail. He's not as eloquent in his speech, which is why Paul says in, in chapter 5, they're concerned about outward appearances, but you should be concerned about what's in the heart. But compared to these super apostles, Paul doesn't seem to measure up to the Corinthians. And so his entire fool's speech, boasting in all these great things that he's done and great things he's seen, comes to a climax in chapter 12. And so Paul writes in verse 5, On behalf of this man, you know, the man who just described this experience, I'll boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Everything he said up until this point, it's been true. He could boast in it. But Paul says he's not going to. He's only going to boast in his weaknesses. Paul says, think nothing more than what you have seen or heard. And this is exactly what the Corinthians have struggled with, as I said. What they've seen is a frail figure. What they hear is a lack of eloquence in his speech. But Paul says he's going to intentionally boast in these things and not the strengths that the Corinthians and the super apostles want to lift up and boast about. In fact, he actually wants the Corinthian church to join him in boasting about his weaknesses. And so he underscores his weaknesses and says, boast in this with me. Uh, But this is a pretty huge cultural shift for the Corinthians. And this is a big cultural shift for us, you know. Choose weakness over strength. In our culture, in the Corinthians culture, that's like saying choose the ugly over the pretty. You know, we lift up the beautiful, we lift up the strong, we we appear what prefers good. A good test, if there's two products exactly the same, one has a good website, one has a bad website, which product are you going to buy? Same price, same product, which one? We love what appears good. We exalt good presentation, impressive resumes. Choosing weakness over uh, strength seems nonsensical. Like when you're at a job interview and someone says, well, tell me some of your weaknesses. I mean... Who really says their weakness? You, know, you, say, you humble brag of strength. You say, well, you know, I, I work too hard. <laughs> and even within Christian circles, I think we tend to evaluate ourselves based on our strengths, our self-perceived strengths, especially in relationship with God. We figure, I'm doing all right based on my most recent spiritual encounter with God or by how much I know about the Bible or how well I'm, I think I'm doing at following Jesus. And we get caught up in evaluating our performance and we feel bad about our weakness so we don't boast in it. 
And that's the problem because Paul says we shouldn't be considering our strengths in relationship to God, but our weaknesses. And so how can the Corinthian church come to terms with such a massive cultural shift? And how can we? Paul says only by coming to terms with the gospel. He says we can choose weakness over strength because the truth is that human weakness is more in line with the gospel than human strength. Look at verses 7 through 9. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. There's a lot to be said about these verses, but let's start here. Paul will boast in his weakness because God has intentionally given him his weakness. God gave him what in the Greek is a stake in his body, a thorn in his flesh. And this is an infamous saying of Paul, his thorn in the side. What is it, though? What is the thorn? A ridiculous, I mean, seriously, a ridiculous amount of speculation exists. Uh, Some suggested that his thorn is the temptation to doubt. Uh, Others say it was the opposition and persecution he faced in proclaiming the gospel, especially with the Judaizers. Uh, Still, some say it was sexual temptation. Uh, Some say it was, the thorn was, you know, bodily appearance, like a, a disfigurement or epilepsy. My favorite, this is hands down my favorite. Uh, Some say it was bad eyesight, and that's why he wrote to the Corinthians in such big letters. Uh, I don't know. We just don't know. Paul isn't specific about what his thorn is. Uh, I'm serious. I didn't make that Galatians one up. It is in a commentary. Uh, While we may not know exactly, what we know for certain is that God gave him this thorn. That's a little hard for us to digest. But then Paul says, it was given to me and calls the thorn a messenger from Satan to harass me. The word for harass could be beat or torment or strike. You know, it's difficult enough to comprehend that God would intentionally give someone weakness. But even more so that God would employ a messenger of Satan to do so. But like the book of Job. God is sovereign over all things in creation, all of his creatures, 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 uh, including Satan. The book of Job shows us that God will give Satan permission but not power, which means the only dominion Satan has over any person is the amount that God permits. And according to the book of Job, when God permits it, even if we can't make sense of it, it is for our formation. It is ultimately for our good. And so why does God do this to Paul? Paul tells us why. He tells us twice in verse 7, actually. The sentence begins and ends with this statement, to keep me from becoming conceited. I was given a thorn to be kept from becoming conceited. God wants to keep Paul from having an undue sense of his self-importance. He doesn't want Paul to think too highly of himself because of the spiritual encounters he has had. And the risk for Paul then was conceit. And I can see some of you are checking out right now, like, well, I don't need to worry about this. I would never become conceited. I hate to break it to you. That's conceit. Uh, To think that you think so highly of yourself that you know you would never become conceited is conceit. So you better listen up. Now, Paul, he doesn't just have random conceitedness in mind. He actually has spiritual pride in mind. But what's remarkable is that spiritual pride 
is natural to every human being, even if you don't consider yourself spiritual. Hear me out. Say you don't believe in God or you're trying to figure out if there really is a God. And, and you're not spiritual, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you probably believe in your own goodness. And let's be honest, have you ever said anything along these lines? Look, if there ends up being a God and I meet him in eternity, and he'll see then I was a good person and will be okay. And if he doesn't, think that. If he doesn't accept me, then I want nothing to do with God anyway. Have you ever said something along those lines? You see, you assume if there is a God, that your goodness will be the measure by which relationship can be established with him. And you're the one determining how things will operate and on what terms. And if God doesn't operate on your terms, if he doesn't evaluate your goodness in the same way, then you know better than God and want nothing to do with him. It's conceit. You think so highly of yourself that you even would know better than the creator of the universe. But you're not alone. This conceit is especially prevalent in religious people. And I would say I think it's even more dangerous in religious people. Our hearts are predisposed to proving ourselves. And the problem is that we think our performance is what sets us right with God. We do the right things. We go to church. We have a small group. Uh, you know, we read our Bibles. We pray. We serve the poor. We try to share our faith. We do all these things, but deep down, what's driving you is the hope that if you obey, then you will be accepted. But it's conceit. Because if you think how you're doing and how well you're performing is going to be enough to stand before God, it's arrogant. And conceit, it stands in the way of the gospel. It stands in the way of the gospel because the gospel doesn't say, if you obey, then you're accepted. The gospel says, you're accepted, therefore you obey. And that's the danger of spiritual pride. Two people can be doing the exact same things, but with radically different motivation. One does it to be accepted, the other does it because they are accepted. And each could have a spiritual encounter with God, but one would say, ah, I earned this. And the other would say, ah, God has been merciful to me. Which brings us back to Paul. God gives Paul a thorn. He gives him a persistent weakness to keep him from this conceit. God has given Paul a profound spiritual experience, but the risk is to take that experience and lift yourself up above others, to think you're better than others. Because we're so prone towards conceit then, Paul and well, in Paul's life and in our lives, God allows weakness and thorns. But when God gives out weakness in our lives or allows it in our lives, it's not malicious. It's not punishment. It's actually a gift. And I, I realize that this can be hard to believe. But it's true. The persistent weakness in your life, whatever it may be, that weakness that just won't go away, it could be a gift from God. I'm not saying it is, but it could be. And it's important to clarify what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about a habitual pattern in your life that you turn to again and again. For example, God didn't give you a taste for pornography as a weakness to boast in. That's sin. And it needs to be addressed with love and in community and with support. That's not what Paul has in mind here. But perhaps you're disposed to anxiety or depression and no amount of prayer helps. Perhaps you have a physical ailment that you've struggled with or you continually struggle to get ahead in life. You know, maybe the physical ailment for you is, is stuttering or a limp or chronic pain. It's possible, it's possible that this weakness in your life is a gift from God. It might not be, but it could be. 
And if it is, you might even wrestle deeply with it. After all, weakness isn't comfortable. Uh, A thorn in the flesh, a persistent suffering, you know, that can be overwhelming. After all, three times, three times, Paul asked God to take this away from him. This wasn't an easy reality for Paul to bear. And he reminds us that there's permission to struggle with God, to ask him to change our circumstances and the things that seem too much to bear. And so Paul wrestled with God about his thorn, and God responded. But what Paul hears, he heard for all of us. Look at verse 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That is what Christ said to Paul. That is Christ speaking by Paul's testimony. And that's how we can come to see that our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. The gift of having a thorn and all the discomfort that it brings drives Paul away from his own strength and further into the gospel, further into the message of Jesus' power overcoming sin and suffering and death. It drives Paul into a deeper reality of grace, God's saving power and not his own, because Paul doesn't have any saving power anyways. None of us do. And that's the gift of the thorn. It opens Paul up to total dependency upon Jesus. Paul can't save himself. He can't have a spiritual resume that will lift him up. He can't boast about all the things he's experienced because he has a weakness that holds him down. But Paul's thorn, it cuts past this proclivity to become conceited in the things that God is doing through us or the things that we're doing for God. God wants Paul in weakness because it's in weakness that we most clearly see our need for Jesus. And Christ is saying then that we don't need to overcome our weaknesses. We don't need to hide them or fix them. It's in weakness that his power can be on display. It's in weakness that his strength is available. And it's weakness in his hands that we discover that grace really is sufficient, that it really is enough. That it can help us in our greatest pains and suffering that Christ will be enough even there. The hard part, especially for those of us prone towards being conceited, is that we don't want to be weak. But not wanting to be weak doesn't mean that we aren't weak. We each have our own weaknesses and some of us have our thorns from God. I think of Charles Spurgeon, who's known as the Prince of Preachers at the turn of the last century. Brilliant Baptist preacher. Brilliant preacher. And and he had weaknesses, and he was very honest about them. And there's two that I want to highlight. The one I really enjoy is, apparently, in his cultural time, people did not find him very attractive. And his congregation, believe it or not, made fun of his looks on a frequent basis. And so he grew a beard. And he said, I just don't want to distract you, so I'm going to grow a beard. I love that about Spurgeon. Uh, Please don't make fun of my looks. That's just a caveat. But... um, Spurgeon, um, I mean, he, he was a phenomenal preacher. People flocked him. He could uh, pack out venues. Thousands of people would come to hear him preach. And when he was 23, uh, a, a prankster um, yelled fire in the middle of one of these uh, sermons. And people rushed out and trampled seven people to death. And Spurgeon was never the same from that moment onward. From that moment onward, throughout his whole life, he struggled with crippling depression and, and anxiety. So much so that he would have to leave ministry for months at a time to rest and recover. 
What's remarkable about Spurgeon, though, is that he speaks so openly about his thorn. He speaks about how even in the the cloud and the billows of depression that God and grace is sufficient. And he used his experience and his weakness to comfort others experiencing the same thing. Love that about Spurgeon. You have your thorns. I have my thorn. The persistent thorn for me, like Spurgeon, is depression. And that might surprise you. I know it, it surprises people sometimes when I say that. And I don't mean to give an error that I'm somehow not depressed. Uh, most of my friends for over the past 10 years, I would have described my depression as mild depression. You know, I have seasons. And they would come and they would go. Uh, but in February of this year, circumstances pressed down on me in such a way that I just fell apart. And I went to my doctor and I was diagnosed with severe depression. And uh, it was a little shocking at first. And she said, look, what is normal to you is abnormal to most of the population. In fact, I can't even imagine uh, what everyday life is like for you. Now, she has a nice Irish accent, so that news was a lot easier to to hear. But uh, that diagnosis, though, is very freeing for me. Uh, In case you're worried, because I realize that mental health can still carry a lot of stigma, uh, I have lots of support in place. I'm okay. And when I'm not okay, I'm okay with not being okay. I'm on medication now, which, which helps. They're not magic pills. They don't fix everything. Uh, I still feel sad. I still feel depressed at times. Uh, I can still be overcome with a sense of hopelessness uh, and an almost unshakable sense that nothing I do really matters. Uh, I also see a, a counselor, which helps me when I feel like the cloud of depression is enveloping me. I have accountable friendships who check in and really ask me the question, like, how are you actually doing? I've even begun exercising and adapting my diet to be more conducive for my mental health. All of this helps. I'm doing better now than I've been doing in the past 10 years. But God hasn't relieved me of depression yet. He might in this life. He might. He definitely will in eternity. But at the end of the day, with all of these things in place, I still have bouts of depression. But I'm still, I'm slowly coming to embrace that this weakness is also a gift from God. My depressions in the hands of God have have led me away from conceit and into grace because my depression often makes me feel like I'm not doing enough. I'm doing a bad job. I can't accomplish everything I want to accomplish. I can't carry the burden anymore. I just can't do it all. I can't hope enough. I can't pray enough. I can't fast enough. I can't teach enough. I can't preach well enough. My weakness keeps me from doing everything I want to do, and just being human keeps me from accomplishing everything I want to accomplish. I have my limits, and yet I look out and I still see God at work. Everything that happens in this community is grace. Everything that happens in and through me is grace, because I'm often kicking and screaming along the way. The medicine, my counselor, my friends and family, Ansley and Julia, it is God's grace in my life. And over and over again, God says to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And even when I'm depressed and can't see clearly or assess reality appropriately, my grace is sufficient for you. And I can rest in that fact. And I can rest because Jesus didn't die for me when I had everything together or when I was strong. He loves me even when I more closely resemble evil. And what's been really encouraging this year is that learning this language of being able to describe what my inner reality is like 
week to week, month to month. It has allowed me to actually connect with other people in our community and talk to them and share. Say, I hear you're going through this. Let me tell you about my journey. And I've seen that weakness in the hands of God can become a great source of encouragement to those who have persistent weakness as well. I have my thorn. Maybe you have your thorn. And hopefully we can mutually encourage each other in discovering Christ in our weaknesses. Which is what Paul's doing. After reflecting on his thorn, after laying out his case for boasting and weakness, Paul concludes in verses 9 through 10. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ then. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you hear the really, really relieving news in that? Paul branches out from speaking about a specific weakness, his thorn in the flesh, to plural weaknesses, my weaknesses. Through this experience in particular, Paul has come to see that All of his weaknesses can open him up to the power of Christ's reality resting upon him. Whether it's internal weaknesses or physical weaknesses or external struggles and challenge. In weakness, Christ is with us. His grace is sufficient. In weakness, we find Christ walking alongside us, giving us his spirit who comes alongside us to give us strength. Because the way to Christ isn't through strength. Jesus didn't come for the righteous and he didn't come for the strong. In his own words, he came for the sinner came for the weak. He came for people who don't have it all together, who struggle, who doubt, who miss the mark, and that's everybody. And the beautiful news is that grace is sufficient for weak people. It's enough. It's enough to set us right with God, and it's enough for us to be present in our weakness. So it's okay if you're weak. It's okay. You don't have to deny it. The truth is, you are weak. And you often don't have what it takes. And what our city needs isn't more people boasting about their strength or their accomplishments or their spiritual resumes or presenting the air of having everything together. What our city needs is to see power, uh, Christ's strength and his power on display in weakness. What the people of our city need is permission to be honest about weaknesses. And it starts by giving our own community permission to be honest about our weaknesses. But how do we give such permission? Here's what Paul says, by being content, by being content at peace with our weakness. He writes in verse 10, I am content, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. He's content. Because when we are weak, Christ makes us strong and he's sufficient for us. So we don't have to frantically try to cover up our weaknesses. We don't have to hide them. We don't have to try to fix them all. And we don't have to be ashamed of them. In fact, we can boast of them in light of Christ because we can now put down our masks and we can fall into Christ's hands and we can see that he really is sufficient for us, that Christ really is enough for us. Your weakness opens you up to him. And your weakness gives you access to the God of unimaginable strength and grace. And that's why your greatest weakness is your greatest strength. We are weaklings, and Christ is our strength. His grace is sufficient for us because his power is made perfect in weakness.